My name is Sterling Adams. Welcome to this interview with Mary Lithgow Bradford about the life of Lowell Banyan. Mary, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Mary has written dozens of essays, articles, and poems in many Mormon publications, including The Enzyme, BYU Studies, Dialogue, The Journal of Book of Mormon Studies, Sunstone, and Exponent 2. She is a former editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. She edited a collection of essays, among other collections, called Mormon Women Speak. And the books she has written include, relevant to today's discussion, your biography, which we've got here, called Lowell L. Benyon, Teacher, Counselor, Humanitarian. Lowell was born in 1908 and died in 1995. Before we delve into some specific questions, could you give us a general overview of Lowell and his multiple careers? Well, he had 27 years at the Institute, 10 years at the U of U, and I don't know how many years at the Boys Ranch. And then he went down to Salt Lake City to take over the community service organization. He was the director of the Area Community Services Council? Yes. Do you know how long he did that? About 10 years. So roughly, it seems. He was at the U for about 10 years and then uh-huh. 25 years or so at the Institute across the street from the U. It seems almost as if he's divided up into three careers. Yeah, and that's, that's how he put it. And that's how you've titled the book. You've got his teaching career, then his counselor career, which was at the U, and then the humanitarian work. Can you talk a little bit about his educational background? Where did he study? He received his MA at the U, and then he went overseas on a mission to uh, Swiss German mission. And his father sent money so he could stay there and study at Erlangen University in Germany, and went on to Vienna from there. Graduated from Strasbourg. So he got a PhD in sociology? Yeah. Philosophy of economics, or something like that. And his dissertation, can you tell us about that? It was on Marx Weber, methodology of Marx Weber. And it was um, written in English. He studied it in German and passed his exam in French and wrote it in English. And it was the first thing of, of its kind, I think, in English, which looked at Weber's philosophy in a practical way. And then he returned to the United States in about 1933 after finishing that dissertation and took a turn away from philosophy, economics, and became a teacher. Yes, uh, people who have looked into this say that he could have gone anywhere, probably Harvard or whatever, having such a prestigious doctorate. But his wife wanted to return to Utah, and he decided to look into that. How did he end up teaching in the institute program? Well, Don A. Woodsaw had been overseas, I think as head of the missions over there. This is Apostle Woodsaw? Yes, and mm-hmm. he came to speak while Lowell was on mission. And Lowell was his interpreter. And so he was quite impressed with him, followed his career. Mm-hmm. And called him up and said, we'd like you to begin an institute at the U. They had one already at uh, Utah State. So this would have been 1934. Can you describe what an institute is? 
Well, it's an institute of religion in which Mormon students study their religion across the street, usually, from the university so that they can go back and forth and talk about what they're learning, kind of put it all together so they won't be lose their faith while they're at school. It's also a social institution. You can meet other Mormon kids, have a great time while they're in school. I understand you attended the institute at the University yes. of Utah? Yes. About what years? Uh, 1950 to 53, and then 56, I graduated twice from the institute. <laughs> Was that interesting for you? <laughs> yes, I couldn't leave it. I loved it. Did you have uh, classes from Lowell? Yes, Lowell, Lyon, Taylor Lyon, and George Boyd, and Marion D. Hanks. So in the 50s, those were the, the main four yeah. faculty there? Right. You say you loved the institute. Tell us about that. Well, it was a wonderfully wholesome way to go to school. We had so many friends that way, and we could boys and girls together, too. It wasn't separated. We, we had boys' chapters and girls, but uh, they met together. And you could meet friends that way and do everything together. It's kind of home away from home. A lot of people came from far and near to go there because they felt at home there. I, of course, was in the city. I wasn't too far away, but... What can you tell us about your experience with Lowell as a teacher? He was a wonderfully involving teacher. I mean, people would stand out in the hallway and get into his classes because he really cared about what he was doing, and he cared about you. He would made you feel that he knew you. And the way he asked questions, you couldn't wait to get involved with this discussion. You write about his methodology uh, being, I guess, centered around asking questions. Yes. Can you talk a, a little bit about that? Well, as I said, he, he would come into the class and write on the board, what is your philosophy of life? Well, his callous students hadn't thought much about that. They would parrot what they'd heard in church. But he made us think about what we really believed. And it was the first time we've ever come across somebody that made us think that way. He acted like he cared what we said, too. It wasn't just parroting an answer. We each had our own answers. This reminds me somewhat of Gene England's writing about that same institute yeah. group where he mentions of T. Edgar Lyon, George Boyd, Randy Hanks, and, and Lowell, and, and he uh, wrote that something along the lines of when that faculty told us the gospel was true and that it called us to a life of selfless service, we believed them. When they told us to be patient about the church's denial of priesthood to the blacks and that such a practice did not prove either that God was a racist or that the church was untrue, we trusted them. Was that your experience as a yes. student? Yes. Gene was there with me. He was younger, but we had the same feelings. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was younger, but you would have been in the same institute classes mm -hmm. because they weren't divided by sophomore, senior, etc. Really, no. Boyd taught is so high on the high-level philosophy, so that attracted only the upper class. This is George Boyd. Gene mm -hmm. uh, spoke highly of Lowell also, called him the, the best teacher I've ever known, and 
I think he said also, I believe he is also the best practical philosopher the LDS Church has produced in the 20th century. In a 1992 Church News article, Lowell was credited with founding the Mormon institution of the fireside. <laughs> yeah. What were firesides like at the Institute? Well, there was a fire, a fireside, and he brought in speakers from all over. Was this typically once a week, once a month? I don't know. It seemed like it was just once in a while. Lowell had an emphasis on service. Were students involved in, in community projects? Oh, yes. He's very good at that. He tricked us into it. He'd have a service party. You show up there with stuff and you go out to help a neighbor. One time we painted a house and brought in food and Lowell took the woman home to stay because of the paint fumes. And then we would have a party afterwards with the dancing even, refreshments. So all part of the good life. Did did these service projects become a regular part of the student's life? Yeah. Uh, the first time I ever, I ever thought about it. Service being something you could do and have fun at. Did you or did students in general uh, have a sense that the Institute offered a especially productive or enjoyable path to learning about the church? Yes. Well, some of us didn't have the money or inclination to join fraternities. So he founded his own. Associated with the Institute. And the Delta Sigma. So you could join that for $3. <laughs> I mean, so there was a reputation that only the inferior kids joined because they couldn't afford mm -hmm. the others, but that's not true. And lots of people who belonged to both would come over there just to relax and have fun. We discussed John Widso, Apostle Widso, who was in charge of the church's education system, and, and then Franklin West was also. What was Benyon's relationship as a teacher with those two men? I got along swell with those. Mm -hmm. they, he loved them. Frank West was really a fascinating guy, and he was pushed out. Nobody knows really why. He just told to leave one day with no warning. Do you remember what year that was? Probably somewhere in here. When uh, there were changes at the Institute regarding Lyon and, and Lowell also? No, that was before that. Mm -hmm. He had trouble with Joe's feeling. I think his philosophy was different. Franklin West's? Mm -hmm. West was progressive. And he believed in student-centered stuff. You know, let them think through it and kind of build a class around it, which Lowell loved too. And I don't think the hierarchy like that it was too freewheeling. You write about Binion's friendship with many church leaders, including President McKay, and First Presidency members Anthony Ivins, Stephen Richards, Hubie Brown, and various other apostles. How did those friendships develop? Well, partly because of his father, Milton Bennett. Milton was <clears throat> president of the Sunday School, superintendent, I guess, and uh, became vice president of the U. And he knew all authorities and had them into his house. 
Lowell spoke in general conference at President McKay's request and was widely sought as a speaker in many church venues, including BYU devotionals where he spoke at least four times. Do you know what attracted McKay to to Lowell as a speaker? Well, I think McKay really improved the way he spoke and could reach people. And since McKay had been in his home also, good friends of the family, he was glad to have him around. In those days, he would drive over in his Cadillac, over to the toot, as we call it. Who would drive? McKay, to ask him to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, that comes into his office one day. It was informal. I think those days it was still sort of family-oriented church. Lowell and T. Edgar Lyon worked together at the Institute for decades. Can you talk a little bit about their relationship? Well, he he called David and Jonathan one time. Brothers. He had all the skills that Lowell didn't have. A perfect compliment. And he admired him so much because Lion was a family man and spent time with his kids and really meant a lot to him. He'd often have to wait for Lion to come out to go to meetings because he was reading a story to his kids. Did you get to know his children? Yes, I went to school with him. David down to the twins. David was a little bit younger than I and then Two sets of twins were the same age as my two brothers. So we're all in school together. Let's move from talking about his teaching experience to a little bit about his view of religion, his, his philosophy of life. You gave the example of Lowell writing on the board, asking students what is their philosophy. What would you say his philosophy of life was? Question. Best question I've ever known. And you put it into practice. You don't preach it so much as you do it. And there's a Buddha in there somewhere, too. He's Buddhist in his approach. What do you mean by that? Balance. Mm-hmm. Everything should be in balance. Just to mind, an article, I think it might have been called uh, Three Loyalties in Religion, yeah. published in Dialogue, where he talked about that balance, said essentially that there's three basic loyalties in religion to persons, then to gospel principles, and then to the church. He said they're not in conflict with each other, but blend beautifully if I remember all three and serve them in proper conjunction with the others. That's right. When when you say he was Christian, what what would that mean to him, and what does it mean to you to say that somebody's Christian? That you're willing to serve others on whatever level you could. And you find out what the need is. You try to meet it at some level. And he said it's hard to help people because you have to get through a lot of their problems as well as yours. You can't just say, well, I'm going to do this for you. You have to know what the person needs and what, what their their own faith would be. He was just always giving everything away. He he was very happy. Just before he died, he gave his car away. He smiled, just told me as a matter of pride. I just gave the car away. 
And one day he gave the mattress away from their, their bed. And somebody down the street needed it more than they did. So his wife, Mel, said, that's okay, we needed a new mattress. But <laughs> I was doing things like that. I can remember coming across his writings when I was at BYU, and I was struck by the emphasis on service. And more so, I was struck on his finding that in the Old Testament, which I didn't know enough about. I know. So I call it the Unknown Testament. Right. He wrote a book called The Unknown Testament. One essay in particular, I think this came out of a panel discussion on service. In this panel, he described five ways of being religious and said all are valid and meaningful and can be supportive of one another. Then went on to say, none of them has any meaning unless it is accompanied by justice and mercy in human relationships. And then said, you don't truly know religion if you don't know the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament, Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. They reject every expression of religion if it is not accompanied by justice and mercy in human relationships. So then and now, that certainly calls me to repentance. Can you talk a little bit about his love for the Old Testament? Yeah, I I think that's the first time I ever knew about it myself. Do justly, love mercy, walk with God. I, I took, you know, I studied classes and I took it at school, but he put it into practice. In the image of walking with God, not in front of him, not behind him, with him, was important. Because God would not, would not force you to do anything. And he was working within history himself. So you could work with God. And I think the Old Testament made it clear, which I hadn't known before. When I was at BYU in 1988, Student Review, the off-campus newspaper, published a essay of his called The Weightier Matters. Yes. A short essay that... My favorite. That Gene, it was also a favorite of Gene England. He, he later described it as the best introduction to the values of Benyon's life and writing, and one of the very best essays written in our time. And I can remember from that him quoting from, I think, Amos in the Old Testament, and then essentially applying it to the saints of our time, saying that the the scene that Amos describes might be compared to a war dinner or social. The saints are busy enjoying food and entertainment, but they do not suffer sorrow for the suffering of their brothers. Somehow these affluent saints lack any concern for those beyond their eyesight who are in need. Perhaps the greatest modern convenience is the ability to insulate against the poor, Mm -hmm. to assume either that there are no poor nearby or that some church or government program will take care of them. That seems to be a... Yes, he made us aware of that. We didn't know that before. Seems to be a common trend in many of his writings, calling us to repentance on on this issue of service and, and doing justice. In 1985, Desert Book published Lowell's book called The Book of Mormon, A Guide to Christian Living. Mm -hmm. That had 28 or 30 chapters divided into sections, one on the wisdom in everyday living, Lowell's practical side there, principles and ordinances of the gospel, and then universal concepts. 
Can you tell us a little bit about Lowell's feelings for the Book of Mormon? Well, I think that he really, I think you have a note here that kind of covers it. My thesis is that Book of Mormon is a religious book, not a text in theology or history, geography, anthropology, excuse me, or archaeology. It's a religious teaching. I tried to pull out about 28 ideas I found in the book that are worth listening to and living by. Some are original, some are stated original ways, <clears throat> and some also appear in the Bible. I like the Book of Mormon. I like to teach it. Now, I said there are problems that they couldn't resolve, so he went uh, to um, spend a semester at the Washington State class in uh, archaeology and he came home thinking you really couldn't prove it. Did that mean that he felt it was not historical or that it was but it couldn't be proved? No, I think he just felt it couldn't prove it and mm -hmm. why bother because they're living it as a religious book and trying to find exactly where everything happened doesn't really help you all that much. You, 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 you test it. You know, it's a blueprint to try it out and see if it works. Like the seed, it's tasty. And so he thought that the Book of Mormon gave ways to understand the gospel better, to bring Christ into this world, into our world, and make it more practical. And he's, he says it's full of ethical values and affirmations that we need. Let's talk a little bit about Lowell as a writer for the church. How did he first get into the business of writing lesson manuals that were official church manuals? Well, I think that that's what they wanted. They wanted him to write some lesson manuals to teach with. So these would go along with yeah. what he was doing at the Institute. And that first book, what's it called? This first Manual. Well, I have a bibliography here. It's published several times in hardback. What, and what about religion in 1934? Well, that's the first one. And then I guess that's, and then he had a later one. Well, there's 25 to 30 manuals he wrote here. I won't uh, read them all. But yeah, what's the third thing? Anyway. Youth and its Religion, The Religion of the Latter-day Saints. And that came out in hardback mm -hmm. and used for all sorts of things at church. You still find it, I think, in the used bookstores. So it sounds like he started writing for the Institute, and then eventually you can find his manuals written for Maya Maids, M-Men and Gleaners, Sunday yeah. School, Relief Society, Priesthood Primary, etc. He used them for everything. But the one in which he describes the religion is really important one. Another uh, one that appeared to have a long run was An Introduction to the Gospel. Yes. It was a 1955 Sunday school manual that I guess was used into the late 1960s. And some people have tried to get them to redo it, use that again. I wish they would. It gives you the whole thing in a way that you can put into practice. A methodology like Mox Weber. This was Mormon methodology. He was, in addition to the manuals, he was commissioned to write articles for various church magazines. Some of the people you talk about that specifically requested articles from him were 
apostles Anthony Ivins, Hubie Brown, John Widsow, and Ezra Taft Benson. Do you know, when he was asked to produce an article, was it typically an assignment that he was asked to write about a specific topic? Yeah, usually it appeared in a magazine like Instructor or, you know, Ensign or whatever. Gene England wrote about him that until authors were no longer identified in the 1970s, his name appeared more often than any other in LDS Church lesson manuals for all auxiliaries. He has spoken in more essays and books over a greater variety of subjects than perhaps any other contemporary Mormon. He is the only one to have written for virtually every official and independent Mormon periodical of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, as a student, were were people aware at the time that Lowell had that type of influence no. as a writer? No, they just thought he was he was our teacher. He loved him. He what? liked to uh, encourage the students to uh, uh, do things that the toot that met with their studies. So I was asked to uh, organize some poetry and things for the worship services. And he asked me to edit his book, Religion and Pursuit of Truth. That was really, that gave me quite a lift. Were you a student then? Yeah. And graduate student. You referred to the toot. That's yeah. evidently the uh, term it, for the institute. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so he, he did that a lot and helped us with our own projects. What are some of Benyon's books or other writings that you'd recommend to someone as an introduction to his works? Well, I think his little book, first little book he called it, Things That Matter Most pocket size white thing that he had he published himself. It's been reprinted several times. Very good introduction. He has a a pyramid of values which he lived by. Easy to understand with examples. And that encouraged him to go on do some other little books, nine or ten of them. What about Gene England's The Best of Lowell Benyon? Did that include some of the little books in it, or is it more essays? Essays, speeches and essays. Certainly they relate. That was published by Desert Book in 86, and then Lowell had The Unknown Testament, also published by Desert Book in in 1988. Those books you can find at used bookstores Mm -hmm. or online. I guess there's several places where you can get some of his essays. His writings in the Enzyme, the Improvement Era, Articles and Dialogues, Sunstone, Student Review, those would all be available in the online archives of those publications. You write that as early as the 1930s, there was tension between some church leaders and the church's institute system over how literally the scriptures, particularly the Bible, should be interpreted. Can you describe that tension? No, I didn't really feel it in my day, but uh, I know it always was a problem. What was the problem? Well, Joseph Fielding and others like him were too little, little. It had to happen just that way, you know. 
in the, when they came along with his book on evolution, that started quite a storm. This is Joseph Fielding Smith's book, Man, Man is Origin Destiny, mm -hmm. 1954, I think. He wanted Lowell and others to use that book to teach from. They said they couldn't do it. It was in direct uh, opposition to what they learned across the street at school. They didn't want to get involved with that. They wanted to teach evolution there, anti-evolution. They teach a religion. Well, speaking of that book, in, in 1954, just after it had come out, there was a seminar in the summer at BYU for the church education system instructors. And at a public question and answer session, Lowell asked quite respectfully how, I guess he was asking for advice on how to teach students about the issues of race in the church and how to teach about science and evolution. Can you tell us a little bit about that meeting? Well, two people, uh, Mark Peterson gave a racist talk, which Lowell objected to. And then Smith then got up and talked about his book. So he took them both on at that meeting saying he couldn't really teach that way. But he didn't believe that black people were inferior, couldn't teach it. They couldn't teach the uh, evolution thing. You describe his, his method of asking that question, or, or talking about that, in a way that calls to mind his teaching methodology. Yeah, it was ask questions. And that is, what he really was doing was asking a question of, could you help me in figuring out yeah. how to teach this now, difficult... How could I do this? How can I present it to my students? You mentioned that T. Edgar Lyon wrote Lowell a note afterwards and said, It wasn't until you raised your question on Thursday at the conference about the problem of a boy who needs to be treated as a Christian that anyone sounded a sweet note. Your words fell like manna from heaven on a starving people. A Y man, meaning a BYU man, sitting back of me, said to me in a low voice as you finished, What a thrill it must be to work with a man of love vision, wisdom, and insight, as well as great faith, you are to be envied. Mm -hmm. Well, what was, if any, the reaction by Joseph Fielding Smith or, or other church leaders to that? Did oh, they create the, any waves? The meeting. They met with them, Lyon and Ben. Met with who? Um, Joseph Fielding, Mark Peterson. And they said it was a good meeting. They felt okay about it. But it was kind of what was ha going to happen further down the line. So you think that Lowell's resistance to Joseph Fielding Smith's views on scientific matters helped earn Lowell a, maybe a spot on a, a trouble list? Yes. And McKay would defend him, but, uh, you know, there's always these people down below watching carefully. Right. You, you mentioned that the Institute instructors also met with McKay and asked him whether essentially they, they should require to use man, his origin, and destiny. And McKay told them that the book had not been authorized or approved and that it, that it, quote, did not represent the position of the church on such matters as the age of the earth and the theory of evolution. Right. And he told them to, quote, go on teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as you have been, and pay no attention to these foolish ideas that some people are trying to make appear to be the word of the Lord. Mm -hmm. But, then you point out that shortly afterwards, still in 1954, Wilkinson created a list of institute teachers that he felt were not sufficiently orthodox. 
and the list included the Salt Lake Institute teachers who had been in these meetings, including Lowell Binion. Do you have a sense that uh, that, that meeting put them on the list, or would they, were they already identified as... Oh, I think they already were. ...as not orthodox enough? I'd say Ernie came in then. In about, when, 52? Yeah. And he, I guess he replaced Franklin West? That's right. What... Unified Church Education System. That made a big difference. So you write that in 1953, the new president of BYU, at the time Ernest L. Wilkinson, became the chancellor of what was the newly unified church education system, and that he had a vision of replacing the institutes completely with a system of LDS junior colleges. Yeah. I guess in California, Salt Lake, a different one in Idaho. And these would be feeder schools for BYU. Yeah. And he required the institute people to send students to him, read a letter saying, transfer to BYU. Well, Lowell couldn't do that. He thought the institute program should stay there. So BYU was trying to recruit additional students? Yeah, from the institutes. And that really, Lowell couldn't do that, and that meant that he was on this list of being unsupported. You describe uh, a campaign by Wilkinson against Franklin West, who was the previous head of church education, and against Benyon as the director of the institute. Did Wilkinson have issues with these men at the time beyond the fact that they were involved in the institution he hoped to close? No, I don't think he had anything against them personally. So Wilkinson uh, becomes chancellor in 53, and you write about as early as 54, there's suggestions that the, there need to be changes at the Institute. You describe in the books, in your book, events leading up to the time in 1962 when Lowell, as we'll talk about, was asked to leave the Institute. The thing that's striking to me in learning about these events is here we have one of the most prolific authors of church manuals, he was loved and honored by thousands as a superb teacher and counselor, good friends with many church leaders, including President McKay and First Presidency members, various other apostles. He was frequently commissioned to write lesson manuals, asked to write articles for virtually all the church magazines. Over four decades, apostles from John Widsow to Ezra Taft Benson were some of those that specifically were requesting articles from him. His cousin, Adam Benyon, was an apostle, one-time head of the Sunday schools. His father was the superintendent of the Sunday school, he was colleague and close friends with Frank West. He spoke in general conference, and he was widely sought as a speaker in other church venues. But in spite of all this, in 1962, he's essentially pushed out of the church's institute program. Can you talk to us about what happened? Was he caught in a changing tide of church leadership? Well, I think that's part of it. I think it's overcaused. Most things are. People wanted to move on different directions. And he was so popular, I think there was some jealousy. Too many kids want to get in class. But I do, th I do blame Wilkinson because he was the one that put action. In his capacity as chancellor of, of the unified education system. What do you view as the main reasons behind the decision to remove him as a director? Well, Ernest had several lists. One thing was that he didn't like his attitude about the blacks. Another one was he didn't, uh, he ran the back of authorities by <coughs> uh, arguing with his missionary system. You know, the 
famous baseball mission or system. But he thinks those are only just excuses. He wanted to move him out of there. With, if those were excuses, what would the principal reason have been? They just wanted to do it differently. It was too freewheeling. He had his own ideas. Students, there weren't, too, there weren't as many students as they thought should be there. His idea was to cast a net. Not cast a net, excuse me. Not to cast a net, but to advertise, say we're here, let people come of their own free will. But Wilkinson wanted to have a tightly run school thing with grades and uh, credit. Law was opposed to that. So you mentioned in the book that uh, Wilkinson wrote up a list of five complaints against Lowell, and they included that he didn't recruit students aggressively enough, first, and then second, the classes weren't academically rigorous enough because they were graded as pass-fail, didn't require outside papers. Three, he hadn't pressed hard enough to convince the University of Utah administration to grant credit for institute courses. Four, that Benyon did not have a good defense of the church's position on the, quote, Negro question. In five, that Lowell had questioned the, quote, pressures put on missionaries to hurriedly baptize people into the church. Although, evidently, Wilkinson acknowledged that there were general authorities that shared the same critique. Let's take a look at just one of those areas, uh, the Negro question. In 1984, there was an interview by Lowell published in Sunstone where Lowell said that as early as 1943, he had felt that there was no justification for the church's practice of not allowing persons considered to be black to participate in the temple or priesthood privileges. But it seems like that he took care not to go out of the way to criticize the church or its leaders over this issue. Can you talk about that? Well, he worked for the church. He really couldn't go out of the way if he wanted to. But he thought you should work from within. He didn't think he should call the newspapers or things like that. And he always felt that way. So don't leave the church in the hands of the conservatives. Work within, I believe. Seems like the uh, the John Fitzgerald case in the 1960s was an example where he had publicly criticized the church's racial policy and was called to a trial for his excommunication. Lowell testified for John at the trial, but told the court that he felt the same way as John, but didn't believe that the way to bring about change was to do it publicly, that he wanted to respect the church's leadership and reputation. Yeah, that's pretty good way to look at it. Before the 1978 revelation on this issue, had you heard Lowell talk about or discuss the priesthood temple ban? In class or elsewhere? No, not in class. Usually just privately. We knew how he felt. We wanted work to see that come to pass. Gene England writes about being in a class with Lowell in 1953 where Gene had repeated some of the folklore about blacks, maybe that they weren't valiant in the preexistence, that dark skin was a curse or something like that. And he writes that Lowell gently suggested that God revealed that the God revealed in Christ would surely let blacks know what they had done wrong and how they could repent, rather than merely punishing them. 
And since God had done no such thing, it seemed better to believe that blacks had been and were no different spiritually from the rest of us. And Gene writes that that interaction in class led him to start reconsidering and, and change his position. Yeah, that's why he did that. Work with the student needs. And when Revelation finally came through, we wanted him to come forth as a statement. We thought, thrilled, you know. He said, no, let's just go on and do what we think's right. But he was really happy about it. In 1961, 62, Lowell's leaving the Institute, did you, did students in general at the time have a sense that... Students were really upset, outraged. Before it occurred, did people know that the tension was there? Well, yeah, we heard about it. I was in Washington, just had my second child. Washington, Mm D.C. Very upset. I called Ben Benyon. And he said that Doug Alder was getting together some letter writing campaign to Hubie Brown. But Lowell had said, put a stop to it and said not to do it. We just wanted some way to vent, we're so upset. And then, what what happened then? Well, he just told us to go on. We had other things, he had another job and we shouldn't be so upset about. We had a party where we all honored him and the others. Old Lemondale people. But uh, it was very upsetting to us. And then that's what he did. He moved on and immediately took a position at the University of Utah. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? Well, uh, luckily I was able to see the diaries of Alpen. They weren't available for a long time, and they finally opened up. And he had been, Avery Alpen had been wanting to ask Lowell Bindon to come across for years. And he was in touch with... By come across, you mean from the Institute to the University of Utah? And he was in touch with Ernest Wilkinson about it, old school chums. And uh, so they kind of got back and forth, and and Lowell was waiting to talk to President McKay about this whole thing. Never could get an audience with him. He wouldn't say whether he would come or not, you know. So finally, Alpen gave it to uh, Neil Maxwell. Dean of Students, and Neil asked him to come as associate dean and also to work on a project with youth, juvenile delinquency, a grant they had from the government, so that's what he did. And he didn't want to be the dean. He never wanted to be be an administrator, even though he was. But he liked working this job because he, he saw all the trouble students. Anybody who got in trouble came to him. And he had formulated a whole different way of doing student problems where they would get due process. You couldn't just kick a student out of class. You had to go through a project consisting of half teachers, half students. And this was set up by law. It was a wonderful change in the school horses. So he was there for a decade. How did he come to be viewed by the University of Utah community? Oh, they were all just thrilled to have him. They said whenever he came, he had such a feeling of peace and trouble that was coming up could be solved. And when he decided to leave, school said, we'll just put you on leave. We want you to come back. We didn't want him to go. 
what caused him to decide to well, leave? Well, his main reason was everything was changing there, too. The dean of students left, and a new dean wasn't doing things the way Lowell liked to do them. So he had people urging him to come down to the community services. So I thought, well, I'll go down there. He said, well, try it for a while, see how you like it. So for two years, he was teaching part-time at the U and working downtown. What was he teaching? Sociology. <coughs> in 19... Thomas, excuse me, Thomas O'Day, quite a famous uh, sociologist, left and he took over his classes. In 1958, President McKay asked him to speak in the priesthood session, I think, of General Conference, and assigned him a topic of the dangers of going steady too soon and too much, yeah. which is almost a, a counseling youth topic. Yeah. Did he have uh, a, a reputation, or did President McKay regard him as a particularly effective communicator yes. to the youth? Yes, his courtship and marriage classes were famous. He had this dating method, ABC method. You date three people, age know of each other, and they get to know them before they get serious. Because in those days, going steady was a real problem. People started out too soon, getting too serious. Nowadays, there's more, more group dating and things like that, but in those days, it was kind of a problem. So he had this famous ABC method. And my husband and I went all the way to Z, we said. <laughs> <laughs> Once he left the, the U, it sounds like there was a transition period where he was working with the community services organization while part-time teaching. Yeah. And then he quit the teaching altogether and at that time, what did he do? Just stayed with the community services because it was a full-time job. And what did that organization do? Well, it was an umbrella organization. All the others fed into it for services elderly and... For the county of Salt yeah. Lake or the city? Yeah, whole state. Really. And he... He reorganized it, so it was my hands-on. And at the same time, was he operating the boys' ranch, or were those yeah. exclusive activities? Yeah. Tell us about the boys' ranch. Well, he'd always wanted to have a ranch where city kids had learned to work, the way he had learned. His uncle had him come and work on his ranch in the Vernon, Utah area, when he was about 14, 15. And that was so great because he, he had lived up by the U, you know, with his father. And this way he got to be in the outdoors and learn how to work outside. And it was so invigorating and a learning experience for him that he wanted to offer it to other kids. Nowadays there'd be girls too, but in those days the girls came and helped with the uh, food. <laughs> I understand one of your children. When he was 13, and then when he was 15, he was a counselor. So you could become a counselor. How did Lowell enjoy or react to his third career of community service? Well, he always said, I used to teach religion, now I practice it. Which is not true, because they always practice it. But he just had a way of, of getting people to want to help. He would give a speech somewhere, and he'd run up and say, I can help, and he'd say, do you have an hour, a day, meet me such and such a place, bring 
such and such tool. And they'd show up and he'd be there. Well, there was some criticism on that because he can't, you can't clone him. He can't be everywhere. So Charles Johnson, who was head of the <coughs> United Way, argued with him about it. Because he said Lowell believed in the individual branching out. And he thought it better to have a group which reached down to the individual. But Johnson said both are true. And both seem to work for Lowell. He could motivate people to want to do it. In 1986, the University of Utah established the Lowell Benyon Center for Community Services. Can you tell us about that? Well, that was a wonderful thing that his nephew, Pony, he was vice president of the school, had seen a service organization at Stanford. He thought we should do something that like the youth, service learning and name it after Loben and use his principles. So <clears throat> they went through very quickly. Usually things like that take years. They wanted to name it after Lowell, and he didn't want his name on it. He never wanted a name on anything except his writing. And he finally had to go out of the room while they decided to name it the Lowell Hellbenden. <laughs> and uh, it just took off right away. The kids wanted to get involved and stuff. Now they have service learning teachers. Now as in, in 2006, it's still operating. Yeah, very good too. It branched out into all sorts of different parts of the state and overseas. And the kids think of what to do too. They have a group of students who found their own little um, community service plan, going to schools, going to Indian reservations. Amazing. Thank you. That mostly uh, finishes the questions I had in mind. Let me ask, in reading the book, I had a sense of, of loss that with the Institute of the 50s and 60s and with the faculty that we've talked about and then the change that occurred in 62, it's as if there was a passing of an era in the Institute system and perhaps in the church itself. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I think it was, I, probably because I lived through it, that this free agency, kids doing things on their own, now it's so cut and dry, and they, they don't, <clears throat> I, I shouldn't criticize because I don't know what it's like now, but at the time that I was there, I thought to myself, this is a charmed time. I'd like to write about it. I thought about that when I was a student, because I realized it wouldn't happen again just like that. So much uh, enjoyment of learning and service together. Let the gospel just fit in with your daily life. And it's never left me. And every time I <clears throat> have a crisis in my life, I think, what would Brother Brendan say? And of course, T.A. Goodline was remarkable too, and I'm glad his book is out. His son did his book. Ted Lyon wrote a biography of yeah. T. Edgar Lyon. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. I love thinking about Lowell Bennett.